My name is Sharon. This is Joseph to my right and Steve to my left. We'll be teaching this retreat together. All three of us have in the fairly recent past had time to intensively explore this practice, the practice of metta, which has been really like a blessing in my life, certainly. has changed my practice quite considerably. So it feels especially wonderful to be able to share this with other people. The word metta is a Pali word. Pali is a language from the time of the Buddha, about 2,500 years ago in India. Its root meaning is that of friend. Cultivating a feeling of metta or heart full of metta means cultivating the power of friendship, learning what it means to be a true friend to oneself and, in fact, to all that lives, to all creatures, all living beings, all those that draw breath, whom we share this thing we call life, to be a friend. It also has a meaning of gentleness, It's likened to a very gentle rain that falls upon this earth. It doesn't fall just in select places, seeking out some spots and excluding others, but falls everywhere equally and very gently. There's a beautiful phrase in the Buddhist scriptures about this. It's described as the liberation of mind, which is love. It's the liberating force of the power of love. And of course, for us in this culture, this can be very confusing. Because when we hear a word like love or loving kindness, which it's translated as sometimes, we tend to think either of passion or of sentimentality. And metta doesn't mean either of these things. Passion is a very complex feeling, as we all know, bound to desire, expectation, the whole wealth of our conditioning. Sentimentality is really an ally of delusion. It's when we mistake that feeling of love for something that says, well, there is no pain in this world. Everything is very nice. It's so splendid. It's so pretty. Everything's cool. There's nothing to worry about. It's kind of like a Hallmark greeting card version of love. You know, if you put a little Vaseline on the lens and things get a little mushy, then we feel content. But really when we talk about love or we talk about metta, it's neither of these things. It's something very different. And it is this discovery that we will perform that we will explore in this next week together. Metta is power. It's some of the most potent and incredible energy that we can connect to. To understand that our minds do have power, that we have incredible power, this potential within us for understanding, for feeling at peace, for feeling safe, 
to have a sense of confidence and surety as we walk on this earth. The particular force or power of metta is that of bonding or cohering, of making one, taking scattered or disparate forces or elements or people or beings and uniting them, making them one. It's likened to having two dry substances, like say we have two pieces of paper and we try to smush them together, they're not going to stick, they're not going to hold because there's no agent that's going to, to bond them. There's no moisture there. Metta is likened to that moisture which will allow those two pieces of paper to come together, to be at one with one another. That is why it is such a healing force within us because all of the disparate and seemingly separate parts of ourselves that feel so fragmented can come together, can be connected. We can experience this unification, this wholeness. The force of metta, of love or loving kindness, dispels the illusion that we have of separateness, of being apart from one another, of existing without one another. And so not only does it provide that kind of internal healing, that sense of wholeness. But because of the space it opens up between beings, it is known as that which ends fear. That metta is taught for the eradication of the feeling of fear. We feel fear when we feel separate, when we have that sense of alienation, of disconnection when something is seen as being out there, way out there, threatening us. In the practice of metta, in the cultivation of the space of mind, there's also the growth of a lot of integrity because we're not moving into situations looking for what we can get out of them, that ever so slightly sleazy thing that we do. We understand more about a still point within us. We can come to rest. We can come to peace. It's a sense of sufficiency, of completeness. Being able to, in some way, stand upright instead of lean for, leaning forward, seeing what we can get out of something or somebody. Metta, you will be happy to know, is a very happy practice. And it's best done in a way that is very light-hearted. The beginning of the Metta Sutta, the teaching from the Buddha, starts with saying, sit comfortably. So I urge you to sit comfortably, not only literally, but on every level, to understand that it's about happiness. It's about creating the conditions for our happiness for our delight, our ability to take delight, to rejoice, to be happy. We don't have to be grim and kind of horrified at our process. That it's meant to be something that creates spaciousness, it creates openness, it's filled with light, it's filled with joy. 
and create the conditions for an open heart, for that kind of gentleness and softness. We do this by practicing in a way that is gentle, that is soft, that is accepting. They say that metta or loving heart grows from a feeling of contentment when we can accept that which has been offered. We can be at peace with the moment. That means offered both externally and internally. What is being offered right now? Can we be content with that? It grows out of an ability to accept advice willingly. Because as it says in the teachings, since people are always going around offering one advice, whether we want it or not, if we continually take offense at that, if we feel threatened in some way, then we're not going to have a very loving heart. Just to be open, to be easy with things, to surrender a little bit. You know, even if you don't like lunch on a particular day, it's okay. You can eat it. You can enjoy it. To have a light heart about things. To have that sense, that spirit of lightheartedness, of ease and of happiness means to be able to continually begin again. As you practice and different things arise and you feel lost and you feel tired and you feel discouraged and you feel disappointed and you feel angry and you feel afraid and all of those things, to realize that that is a natural part of any process of uncovering of understanding ourselves, of seeing ourselves, to be able to let go, to begin again. You don't need to feel threatened. You don't need to feel afraid. You don't need to take offense. To practice contentment, to say, okay, let it go, and begin again. To have this happy spirit, to be joyful in what we do, doesn't mean to be sloppy and not to care to care quite intently about the practice. In my own practice of metta, what it came down to in my mind, or the way it it became clearest for me, was as an act of cherishing. I was cherishing each moment, which is the expression of a certain phrase. That's the actual technique of the practice, is to repeat (laughs) phrases. And I began to understand it as an act of cherishing each phrase, just one at a time. This is what I was doing. It seemed to me like I was holding something very precious in my hand, and I had to hold it in just the right way. If I held it too tight, if I grabbed on, it would shatter. But if I really didn't care, if I held it too loosely, if I wasn't paying any attention, it would fall off, it would fall on the ground, and it would break. (coughs) To hold it dearly, it's very precious, and to cherish it just one moment at a time. As I said, many, many different experiences arise in any practice, and they're not always very wonderful feeling. I mean, there are some very painful and complex times that come. There's pain, and there's sleepiness, and there's restlessness, and there's everything. An image you might use in the practice is that of planting seeds in a garden. That each time you express this wish for happiness of yourself or for others, it's 
like you're, you're taking that moment and you're planting a seed in a garden. Sooner or later, nature will take its course. And that seed is going to flower. Sometimes it happens right away. And of course, that's very gratifying. In the moment of expressing that wish, there is happiness, there is love, there is caring. And sometimes you don't feel that at all. But it will blossom. It definitely will blossom if you plant the seed, if you take the time and just do it. One moment after another, it will happen. As a practice, it's taught me a lot about the craft of meditation. There's a friend of mine that I was practicing with in Burma. This person was also doing metta meditation. And he described it in such a way so that he said that it was only at that time that he began to see the extreme depth of impatience in his mind. Because he found himself rushing through a phrase to get to the next completely identical phrase. And he would just do it as fast as he could. And then he would do the next one as fast as he could. Because of that tendency that we have to get through it, to get to what's next. It's that leaning forward. Learn a lot about just the craft of being in the moment. Applying one's energy fully and gently. Learning how to let go. Metta is a concentration practice. It's not particularly an insight practice, but you will understand a lot about yourself. Just as various aspects of the mind become revealed. What we try to do in the technique of the meditation is very gently, again and again, let go of everything that arises other than our chosen object. We have a dedication or a commitment to nourish and support and cherish these phrases, this expression of the loving heart. And everything else that comes up, we gently let go of again and again and again. It's like this act of renunciation, of continually letting go, very gently but consistently, is what creates space. It creates space for the loving essence to arise and to be sustained the mind will get very steady and concentrated. We practice confidently and with joy and with patience, knowing that it is one moment after the other. We practice with a very heartfelt wish for our own happiness and for the happiness of all beings knowing that this is our nature, really. This is what we all share, no matter who we are, that all beings want to be happy. And this is all right. We should be happy. We tend to have a lot of funny models sometimes in our society about happiness and suffering and purification. and It's really all right to be happy. And this is what our lives can be about. 
it's not selfish and it's not egotistical. That it's really out of that space of sufficiency, feeling whole, feeling complete. That's when we can begin to give, when we have a sense of abundance within us. And if we feel we have nothing, we're not very inclined to share very much. But we really have all we need, if we could understand that. Many times when I have taught metta and people do begin to experience some amount of happiness, the first thing that they say is, I don't feel like I deserve this. But we do deserve this, that all beings want to be happy, every single one of us, and that's okay. In fact, this was the, the compassion of the Buddha in his decision to teach, that he looked upon the world of beings and saw just this, that all beings want to be happy, and that so very few beings know how. And we can learn how. For 45 years, from the time of his enlightenment, the Buddha taught the Dhamma. He taught the principles by which the universe operates, how happiness comes into being and how suffering comes into being. He taught paths that lead to all kinds of happiness, to happiness in the world, in relationship, in business, in family life, having self-respect and respect for others, having a sense of path, of clarity and meaning in our lives. He taught a path to the experience of very extraordinary states of concentration and consciousness, of infinite love and boundless compassion and more silent and empty domains of nothingness and emptiness. And he taught a path to the complete end of suffering, to liberation. The cultivation of metta, loving-kindness, is an intrinsic part of this path. It's like an incandescence or a light. We just light up this power which does exist within us. It radiates far and wide. It's like internal benevolence and softness and gentleness that's raised to a very high intensity, raised to such an intensity that it will radiate outward. There are other qualities that are connected with this power. We'll practice forgiveness. We'll practice compassion, which is love's response to pain. Practice sympathetic joy which is the ability to take delight, to, to really rejoice in happiness, especially in other people's happiness. And we'll practice equanimity, which is balance of mind born out of wisdom and understanding that allows us to experience these qualities of love and compassion and sympathetic joy in a way that is boundless, that isn't marred, that isn't shaken by changing events. This is our week together.
Steve is going to now formally begin the retreat by offering the refuges and the precepts. Following that, I'll speak about just some details of our time here together, and then I'd like to begin the instruction and have just a short sitting. Most of intensive meditation practice uh, in the retreat context is done in silence because there lies the power of spiritual awakening. But there's one very special kind of, uh, of ritual that we do together vocally and that is the taking of these three refuges and the precepts which we normally do uh, in Pali. I'd like to just go over them briefly so that you can translate for yourselves uh, the meaning of them. The three refugees are, the refuges are the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. What does taking refuge in the Buddha mean? The Buddhists consider the, um, the founder or the rediscoverer of this tradition of meditation and the body of the teachings. Even if there are no Buddhas, the Dhamma still is. That is, a Buddha comes along as a human being, not a god or not an angelic figure, comes and enters this world as fully as any of us and then commits to this practice, commits to trying to find the highest truth of things, the highest happiness and peace. So we can view the Buddha and taking the refuge in the Buddha in two different ways. The first is regarding the historical Buddha. That is, we're in a particular dispensation, particular Buddha of our era, 2,500 years ago, Siddhartha Gautama. And we could recollect him and be inspired just that such a person in the flesh came and did what we are doing ourselves in this life. That's one way to regard taking refuge in the Buddha. A second way is to honor, to respect or revere our own inner Buddha. That is the Buddha nature in each of us. Those qualities that the Buddha embodies qualities of compassion, of metta, of confidence and faith and wisdom. All potential forces within us, the very forces that we're here to cultivate. It's, it's like our inner physician, our inner healer, and taking refuge fires this power up within us. It's not to be taken lightly. Anything we set our intentions toward empowers that very force. So it's to be done with all the respect you might have for that which is most sacred. Taking refuge in the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the actual refuge. The Dhamma means for us 
the truth of things or the nature of things, the way things are. It is that state itself beyond all harm and danger. It is peace itself. It is also the path to that. That is how we craft the way we live our lives, how we practice loving kindness and compassion and wisdom. The very path that we create, that also is Dhamma. And it is also the set, the instructions that we hear of, that we, how we enact Dhamma practice in our lives. We hear them or we read them, somehow we are guided. This is Dhamma too. Taking refuge in the Sangha. Traditionally, Sangha is regarded as those men and women who took robes for their lives. They, they became renunciates to devote their lives to this practice, living in monasteries, carrying their bowls around to have food offered. Sangha also includes those who have taken up the practice and have glimpsed the truth or some part of it and are thereby empowered to share this truth, this Dhamma. And in the broadest sense, Sangha is the collective community, all of us who, the union of beings who are treading this path sharing this spiritual community together. As you take these refuges, you can visualize for yourself, you can use the aim of your mind to feel the historical Buddha or the inner Buddha, to trust in this Dhamma path and the set of instructions and where it may lead and the moments where you feel at peace. And as a, um, a way of gathering together a trust for all of us who are doing this together, a, a way of uh, honoring the Sangha, the community. The precepts that we take are also very crucial to successful practice. The five precepts are abstaining from killing, abstaining from taking that which isn't given freely, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from speaking that which isn't true, and abstaining from drugs or intoxicants whatever clouds the mind. It's important, this body of precepts we call sila, sila dhamma. It's important to regard this with a clear perspective because they're also often mistaken for commandments, that is, rules or imposed imperatives, something that we must follow, like thou shalt, thou shalt not, or thou shalt do this. But it's not that way. The Buddha taught that a certain course of action leads to certain results. The abstinence of these um, training rules 
also imply a commitment to their opposite. So, abstaining from killing implies to protect life, to honor life. Abstaining from not taking that which isn't given to us or offered to us is a commitment to trust and respecting of other people's possessions. Abstaining from sexual misconduct, commitment to fidelity and to trust. Respecting and honoring the commitments of others, not harming oneself or any other person with regard to sensual or sexual matters. And the fourth precept of abstaining from saying that which isn't true is an extremely important training guideline because the commitment to abstain from speaking a lie is a commitment to developing the truth within us. We can't possibly go deep into inner truth if we don't create an environment of honesty around us. And lastly, the precept of abstaining from in intoxicants is a commitment to clarity of mind. All of these together, this body of sila, dhamma, creates for us all a crucial environment of safety and trust. And taking these precepts means that we are giving each of us, giving all of us, an environment of trust and safety so that we can feel safe about going inside and not being invaded or in any way um, imposed upon. That we are each of us honoring the other's practice, the other's spiritual unfolding. The words are in Pali, and I'll, and I'll chant them out a line at a time, or sometimes a word at a time, and then you can just respond in kind. This is the official beginning and the honoring of that which we are doing here together. The first phrase, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa, is honoring the Buddha, honoring the enlightened person who brought us these teachings. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Sanam Gachami 
Dhamam saranam gachami Sangang saranam gachami Dutiampi buddham saranam gachami Dutiampi dhammam saranam gachami Dutiampi dhammam saranam gachami Dutiampi sangang saranam gachami Dutiampi sangang saranam gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Go for refuge in the Buddha three times. I go for refuge in the Dhamma. We did that three times. I go for refuge in the Sangha three times. And now just once each through the five precepts. Panati Pata Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adinadana Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawara Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadattana Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami The third precept, instead of abstaining from sexual or sensual misconduct, we actually took the training guide for this period of time to abstain from any sexual activity for the protection of all of us and for the empowerment of the practice. Okay. <clears throat> One thing I would suggest to you in this retreat is that you try to do all of the sittings here in the meditation hall. The instruction that we give will continually change and evolve. 
as we sit here with you and beginning with oneself directing this force of loving kindness moving through all of these different categories of beings those whom we love those whom we don't like all living breathing beings we move on to developing compassion sympathetic joy and equanimity we're going to be doing this throughout the day so please be aware of this and try to be here on time for each sitting so that as a group we can we can move through this process as i mentioned metta is a concentration practice and this means that we need to take care with things we need to take care with our energy if we get very scattered and rushed it's going to be more jarring and it's going to be more difficult to have this kind of gentleness the buddha used a particular image that has always been very powerful for me in my own practice he talked about the mind getting filled with certain qualities like mindfulness or like love drop by drop in just the same way that a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop what i have found is that mostly what we would tend to do is we would do something like stand by that bucket and fantasize like oh isn't it going to be wonderful when it's filled with water you know first i'll do this and then i'll do that and then i'll do that it's going to be a really splendid life or else we say well what difference does it make if i just add one more measly little yucky drop you know because i have to do it drop by drop i can't do it or it's not worth doing but really it will work if we do it just now and now and now just one drop after another that bucket will definitely get filled we can know that we can have complete confidence in that but we have to do it we have to actually add one drop after another and that means a lot of humility and a lot of patience and a tremendous amount of perseverance the retreat is designed to help us in that process there's not a whole lot else to do except develop a continuity in our practice and this is really important that it's one drop after another we have to make that kind of effort or nothing will happen because of this we ask you not to do anything that you don't absolutely have to do to use this time fully to build this momentum add as many drops as you possibly can because it will make a difference we ask you not to read not to spend this time gathering more information about things and to continue the process not to write you know not to be writing letters and not to be um you know writing essays in your journals about all the different experiences you're having not to remove yourself from the experience but to continue on one more drop certainly not to be speaking to one another because it'll be very distracting not to make contact with one another to have a sense of really being within your own experience and the fullness of your own experience learning to trust your own experience not be comparing it to others 
to turn inward as we go through this process. Okay, why don't you get up and stretch for a moment so that we can sit happily and comfortably. Try to sit with your back erect without being stiff or strained, just comfortably straight. Close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. See if you can relax your body. Feel at one with this moment. Let the breath become natural. you like, you can try to sense the breath, have the mind settle just on the heart center, the middle of the chest. Feel the breath as it comes in and goes out without trying to control it or make it be a certain way. It's one at a time. As you're doing this, as you're having the mind settle on this area, see if you can look inside of yourself and find some expression of that which you most deeply wish for yourself. Not just for tonight or for tomorrow, but your deepest wish for yourself, your deepest aspiration. a few phrases. The traditional phrases are four in number. May I be free from danger. May I have safety. It means both inner and outer danger. Inner danger from various forces and mind states that arise that create suffering for us. And outer danger the obvious ones, plus the consequences of our actions when we've been overwhelmed by different forces. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being which means may I not have to struggle terribly with livelihood and family and 
trying to keep life going. May I have ease of well-being. You can choose these or you can choose whatever personally arises for you. If you can find those phrases, begin to gently repeat them over and over again. Not rushing. So you're cherishing each one along with this feeling of the breath at the heart center. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Whatever it is that is most significant for you. Understanding that it is right that we aspire towards happiness, towards peace, towards love. The Buddha, in talking about this, said that you can search the entire universe for somebody more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And this person is not to be found anywhere. That we deserve our own love and affection more than anyone else does. May I be happy. Without forcing, without struggling, just very gently, one phrase at a time. You find your attention wandering, see if you can gently let go of whatever it is that has come up. Return to the repetition of the phrases, the feeling of the breath in and out of the heart center.
You may find the phrases changing and evolving. You can allow them to do that. See if you can maintain a steady attention, expressing each phrase fully, one after another. You can open your eyes now. beginning part of the retreat this will be our practice is opening up to this feeling of loving care towards ourselves gently repeating these phrases over and over again in the sitting and in the walking practice as well when you do walking you can move at whatever speed is comfortable for you this is going to be very odd for some people who've done a lot of Vipassana practice creeping along at a snail's pace. You don't need to do that. You can move at whatever speed you like. Don't necessarily focus on the feeling of the breath, but do keep maintaining an awareness of these phrases. One phrase after another. May I be happy. Whatever. As you walk. Once again, you'd walk back and forth in some area that you find. And just gently be repeating these phrases. Let your cells soak it up, even if you don't feel like anything too dramatic and wonderful is happening. 
just one moment at a time. Do you have any questions at all? Okay. The question was about um, repeating the phrases and still keeping some physical focus. Essentially, the practice is the repetition of the phrases. And if you can do that without anchoring in a physical base, that's fine. You know, sometimes people feel too disconnected somehow, you know, and in that case, it's also fine to maintain this, you know, very gentle awareness of the, the flow through the heart center. Mm-hmm. I think the question was about the words changing. Um, I think that there's a balance there, you know, that you don't want them changing all of the time because there's not going to be a feeling of of really settling, you know, and, and uh, consolidating around a feeling. If occasionally, you know, they change and, and they seem to mold or, or evolve in some way, that's fine. You know, you can allow them to do that but I would contain it to a certain degree, that you're really trying to cultivate something, which means continuity. Yeah. Maybe. Uh-huh. Okay. I haven't taught here in many years, and so I have to kind of relearn the facility. I don't even know where to suggest people walk. I realized that as I started talking about the walking meditation, but we'll, we'll try. Any other questions? May you be happy. Okay, for the sake of happiness of all beings, tomorrow morning we're not going to have a wake-up uh, bell until about 6.15. That means no sitting before breakfast. Is there somebody who would be willing to ring that bell at 6.15? Thank you. Okay. Thank you all very much for coming. I think we'll have a a truly wonderful time together. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.
who has most inspired us over the years of our practice was a woman named Deepama, lived in Calcutta. She recently died a few months ago, and in some way her death called to mind her presence <clears throat> in an even stronger way. And we started just thinking and reflecting about her life and her teachings. She experienced <clears throat> a tremendous amount of suffering in her life. She was married at the age of 12 or 14, as was <clears throat> somewhat customary in Indian culture at that time. She had three children. Two of her children died quite young. Her husband died. She went into an extremely difficult period of grief and of sorrow. She became so ill for such an extended period of time <clears throat> that she was bedridden for five years. At that time, she was living in Burma. She realized that unless she did something you know, to revitalize her spirit, revitalize her energy, that she would also die. So she went to one of the monasteries in Burma and began her practice. She was still very weak and very ill. And she's only about five feet tall. And the contrast between us was quite remarkable when we'd be together. What was amazing was the magnitude of courage and of greatness of heart that was in this little being. Uh, she used to crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. She was too weak to actually walk, and so she would crawl up to be able to sit. It's hard to imagine that happening in this culture. You know, any one of us having enough effort, and enough interest and inspiration. Within a very short period of time, she realized depths both of enlightenment, tremendous freedom, and also a very deep samadhi, very deep levels of concentration and, and power of mind. In being with her, it was clear her experience of the depth of suffering. You could feel that in her. You could feel the tremendous emptiness of self behind it all. Just the, the deepest level of wisdom and of understanding. And integrated with both of these was a manifestation of the most amazing kind of loving-kindness. And in some way that integration of wisdom and love in Deepama was what was so tremendously inspiring to many of us in our practice to see what actually was possible to do. Because her love was very unconditional. It's as if the love were radiating out from her and no matter who came or what circumstance or what situation, that love kept coming forth. It's as if she were this fountain of loving kindness, of loving care. She would give the most wonderful blessings as people would come. You know, they would 
kind of bow down in front of her in some fashion. She would just stroke their heads and stroke their chests and stroke their hearts. And even though she was living in a poor, poor section of Calcutta in outwardly really difficult circumstances, it's like she would leave her presence and there would just be this environment of light and love and good feeling just kind of floating down the street after being with her. What is this? What is this quality of love? So powerful and so transforming both of oneself and of everybody it touches. That's really what this retreat is about. It's to discover the nature of this quality and how we can begin to develop it in ourselves. The beauty of the Buddha's teaching is that when we can see and appreciate certain qualities of mind in other peoples, in other people, certain qualities of heart, it's not something that we merely have to admire or respect or be in awe of. It really becomes an inspiration for us to develop it in ourselves. That's what the practice is about. The word meditation is a translation of a Pali word, Pali being <coughs> one of the languages of ancient India, the Buddha spoke. The Pali word is bhavana. And there's an interesting <coughs> understanding of what this word means in Pali. It's the causative form of the verb to make happen or to develop. And so when we understand this word, it means to cause to be developed, to cause to make happen. Understanding this is something more than just kind of a linguistic appreciation. When we understand actually what this process of meditation is about, causing something to be developed. That's tremendously empowering. Because instead of thinking the meditation practice is something we do, we come here, we sit, we give ourselves an object of attention and somehow hope the mind lands on it and hope something happens from it. And that's really not what meditation means. Meditation means to cause to be developed. And so we're able to do this. We're able to practice certain qualities, whether it's qualities of mindfulness, qualities of concentration, qualities of love, qualities of compassion. Meditation is causing them to be developed, causing them to come forth. Metta, or loving-kindness, is a very simple state. It's the simple wish in our hearts 
for ourselves and others to be happy. Metta doesn't seek self-benefit. We're not wanting anything in a state of metta. It's the simple wish, may you be happy. It's a great purity in this quality because it's unmixed. There's nothing harmful, there's nothing detrimental, there's nothing negative mixed in with this simple wish for all beings to be happy. And so the very simplicity of it is also its great purity. One of the examples of this quality of mind, which, which has always struck me very uh, strongly, is of the Zen monk and poet Ryokan. He was a hermit monk. He lived in the, in the forests and mountains of Japan. Think of the middle of the 18th century. He wrote many haiku poems. He lived very simply, had very few possessions. One day he came back to his hut in the forest and he saw that all his possessions were stolen. He didn't have many to begin with and whatever he had was gone. His only comment, so it said, was a haiku poem. Be nice to speak in haiku. <laughs> it's one of his most famous ones. Upon seeing that everything was stolen, he said, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. <laughs> Imagine if we came back to our homes, everything gone. Oh, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. This is a tremendous, tremendous, unshakable quality of metta. No expressed in that poem. The characteristic quality of this feeling of loving-kindness or loving-care is a softness and a pliability of the heart and of the mind. It makes everything smooth, makes everything gentle. When metta is present, we're filled with feelings of benevolence, were filled with feelings of goodwill. Because of this softness and pliability, love also becomes the foundation for wisdom. So when our hearts are open, when our hearts are soft and pliable, there's a great deal of patience. We're not easily irritated, we're not easily annoyed. And because of this patience, we're able to discriminate more incisively what is wholesome from what is unwholesome, what are skillful actions, what are skillful states of mind, what are unskillful. Because we're patient, we can discriminate. Because we can discriminate clearly in a wise way, we can choose. 
And so the very feeling of love that we develop becomes the ground of wisdom which in turn brings back to us happiness in so many different areas. So it's so beautiful to see how it's possible to fashion our lives and fashion our minds you know, in such a way that we fold back wholesome states one upon another because this is what leads to happiness. <coughs> Thich Nhat Hanh, who many of you may know as a very wonderful Vietnamese <coughs> poet and meditation master and being, <coughs> he wrote that practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. <laughs> it is a clever way to enjoy life. You know, because it is the understanding yeah, there are certain things which bring about happiness. Let's help ourselves to them. That's what this practice of metta is about. Helping ourselves to a little happiness. <clears throat> It's easy to recognize the loving, benevolent, spacious qualities of metta. We can see that. We can understand it. We can recognize it. But there are many times in our lives when we find this lacking. We know that it's wonderful to feel loving. And yet there are times when there is a real lack of this feeling in us. You know, where we feel closed, we feel contracted. There are two powerful forces in the mind which function as enemies to the feeling of love. And it's essential that we understand and that we see clearly what these powerful forces are so that we don't unconsciously <coughs> become identified with them, and strengthen them, and cultivate them. The first one is called the near enemy of metta. And it's called the near enemy because it's a state of mind which looks like love, pretends it's love, is disguised as love, but is not love. The near enemy, this near enemy, which is a powerfully conditioned force in all of us, is the force of desire, the force of craving. It's the force of greed. This is the mind which is wanting something, Metta is the mind, loving-kindness is the mind, which is giving something. Metta is a gift of the heart. Desire is a wanting. These are two very different states, although in our lives they get quite confused. When desire comes and it masquerades as love, it's very difficult 
to actually see what it is that's going on. Because that near enemy of love deceives us, deceives the mind. Why do we confuse them? Why are they so close that we actually often can't tell the difference? In both desire or wanting and in loving-kindness, there is a going towards someone or something. There is a movement towards. And in both situations, there's often a quality of pleasure. It may be very agreeable. Now, if there's somebody that we're very attracted to, and there's a strong desire, and we're moving toward them with that energy of desire, there's the feeling of coming close, and it's very agreeable and enjoyable to us, and we mistake that desire of wanting for the feeling of love. This is an essential discrimination to be making so that we don't get deceived and we can really begin to see the difference. With desire we go towards someone or something or some situation wanting something from it. And in loving-kindness we're going toward with an act of generosity we're giving. Just as an example of the subtlety of this Years ago, very early on in my practice uh, in India, I was, I was walking in the bazaar in the marketplace <clears throat> and I was buying some oranges. And there, as is common in India, there were lots of you know, little beggar children uh, just coming up and asking for things. And so quite spontaneously, and with what I thought was a genuine feeling of care and kindness, I just took some of the oranges and I gave it to this little boy. And he walked away. And in the moment of his walking away, it was like, there was kind of a moment of internal stopping. And I realized that I had been expecting some acknowledgement, the, the fl- a nod of the head, a smile, you know, something to acknowledge that I had actually given him something. But he didn't, he just took the oranges and walked away. And it really revealed to me just how subtle you know, these differences can be in our mind. Here's something that I thought was, was pure and genuine kindness, but it wasn't so pure because there was a wanting in it. It's interesting to observe in one's life, in one's experience, in those times and moments and situations when we are genuinely giving. And it need not be giving a material object. It can be giving our love without wanting anything. Just be happy. And if we can see the difference, it allows us then to actually strengthen 
this quality of metta, this quality and the purity of loving-kindness. It's also quite interesting to investigate and see in our lives, in our relationships, in our meditation practice, what are the different feelings which arise from desire and what are the different feelings which arise from loving-kindness? In our relationships and in our lives, where does fear come from? Where does insecurity come from? Where does disappointment come from? Do they come from a feeling of metta? Or do they come from a feeling of desire? Where do the feelings of peace come from? Where do the feelings of contentment come from? This is not something to believe. This is something really to investigate so that we can really see from our experience how our minds and hearts are working. Not simply to be carried along on the train of our conditioning, the train of our habits, or the train of conventional wisdom and understanding. Whether or not we're practicing desire or we're practicing love, practicing loving-kindness, is completely up to us. It does not depend on anything outside of ourselves. If we can see clearly and understand the difference, then we have the power to actually make some choices in our lives. This is the near enemy of loving-kindness. The far enemy is the opposite of love. It's not something which looks like it, is close to it, but is not. The far enemy is obviously not loving-kindness. This is the feeling of ill-will or aversion. This far enemy of loving feeling is a powerful force in our lives. Now we see so many times in so many situations where annoyance or ill will or hatred or anger will arise. And what is the effect of that? When they arise, what happens? We can observe the contraction. We can observe the hardening of our heart. We can observe the alienation and the separation. There are two kinds of ill will. There's a very strong and aggressive kind. It's the kind of ill will which strikes out at someone. And this is the force of anger. And it's expressed in our thoughts, It's expressed in our speech. It's expressed in actions. And this aggressive form of ill will brings tremendous harm to other people. It really is a striking out energy of the mind. What makes us angry? What makes us resentful of other people? The more we can understand how this mind of ours is working, 
the more clarity we can get, that's what makes it possible then to make choices, to actually cultivate the skillful rather than the unskillful. So what is it that, that brings up these feelings of ill will, the feelings of anger and aversion? <clears throat> One of the things that brings it up is when we think of the harm that somebody has done to us, or the harm somebody has done to someone we love. And it can be in the past, it can be some past situation, it can be happening now, it can be in the imagined future. You know, we can get angry thinking about what somebody might do to us. And the more the mind reflects on the harm that somebody has done to us, it generates these feelings of ill will and hatred and anger. The mind doesn't stop there. Ill will can arise in other ways. If we think about somebody doing good things to people we don't like. We also get angry. It's quite amazing, this mind of ours. And sometimes the mind gets filled with ill will or aversion or anger in totally inappropriate situations. We can see it in two different ways. We can see it clearly with other people, more rarely in ourselves, when the mind is simply projecting our own stuff onto other people. It has nothing to do with the other person, but we can get so caught in our own projections that anger or ill will or annoyance or irritation or hatred can arise. And sometimes anger arises in inappropriate situations where things are totally impersonal and totally out of our control. I see the tendency for this in many different situations, but I do a lot of flying in airplanes. <laughs> I'd like to fly through the air, but not yet. Um, and as most of you know, it's not uncommon for there to be long delays. You know, they, they get you on the plane and you're crowded in, you're sitting with hundreds of other people and there's not much good air. Something's wrong someplace in a two-hour delay and they don't let you off the plane. You know? And this has happened enough times. And I can just watch my mind scanning the aversion channels <laughs> as if they're doing it to me, <laughs> you know, to bother me. And I see the choice that's there. Okay, it can either sit and get annoyed or irritated or angry or not. Or see. It's just conditions and there's nothing I can do about it. It's out of my control. Sit back and relax. There are other times, there's one situation, Sharon and I were teaching in the Soviet Union and we were in uh, the Moscow airport and a big uh, tour 
came uh, of American of American tourists, <coughs> and they had been in various parts of the Soviet Union. And there was this one person, unmistakably from New York, which I can easily recognize. <laughs> commenting on her sign-reading ability in the Soviet Union. And there everything is you know, in the Cyrillic alphabet. And this person, in a very irritated manner, was saying to somebody else in the party, why do they have to write the signs in the Russian alphabet? It really annoys me. <laughs> It was classic. <laughs> it was annoying. <laughs> Couldn't read anything. <laughs> this is one kind of ill will or aversion. It's the striking out kind. There's a weaker kind of aversion. It's called the retreating kind of aversion. And it's the kind of ill will that collapses back on oneself. It's not that it's so harmful to others, but rather we turn this force back on ourselves. And it's ourselves whom we harm. And these are the forces of grief and of sorrow. And when you look very carefully at these mind states, you see that in both grief and sorrow there is aversion. When it gets out of balance, when it gets overwhelming, we turn it back on ourselves. It's a tremendous amount of suffering that people endure because of this. The stronger the force of this far enemy of metta, the stronger this force is in our lives, the more trouble we have in our lives, the more suffering there is. Because if we don't understand it and don't understand how to work with it, it has the power to destroy that loving feeling. The example that they use in Burma of how this far enemy operates. Here's the example of a little frog. It's just about the size of a thumb. And when you touch it, it puffs up. You touch it and it puffs up even more. And touch, puffs up, puffs up. And at a certain point it becomes so puffed up that it can't move. And that's when a predator can come and eat it. And that's how ill will, that's how aversion works in our lives. We think that it's just a little thing. And there may be in a moment of expressing it. But as that force gets stronger, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we're really immobilized in this feeling of aversion. Cre creates tremendous pain for us and pain for others. There is an important aspect of wisdom in understanding 
that both metta, both the feelings of love and kindness and generosity and desire and ill will and aversion are all non-personal forces in the mind. They don't belong to anyone. They all partake of the essentially empty nature of phenomena, the essentially selfless nature. And this is the great wisdom of the Buddha. He saw the interconnectedness and the conditionality of all phenomena, that everything is related to everything else. So it doesn't mean that we are either essentially loving people or essentially angry people. It means that everything arises because of conditions. If we understand the conditions, if we understand what leads to what, then we can cause to be developed those states of heart, those states of mind, which bring us happiness and bring other people happiness. So the question is for us, how can we cause to be developed? How can we practice, how can we cultivate this feeling of love so that it is unshakable? So that the near enemy and the far enemy can't make us waver very much in our loving feeling. They can't overpower the mind. In the Buddhist teaching, wise consideration is the proximate cause for many of the wholesome mind states. <clears throat> and wise consideration means some very specific things with respect to metta, with respect to love and kindness. The first aspect of this wise consideration for the development of love <clears throat> is that we focus and concentrate on the good qualities in people. And it seems so simple, and yet so often it's difficult to do. Our mind seems to take delight in just ferreting out what's difficult in people, you know, or their unwholesome qualities. And of course, what happens? The more we focus on the unskillful parts of people, the more we feel anger or resentment, or aversion, or judgment, or separation, or self-righteousness, that we're not like that. And so this very simple thing of realizing that we are all a package. Each one of us is a package of qualities. You know, and we have some good qualities, and we have some not-so-good qualities. And we're all like that. If we can understand that and be accepting first of our own package of qualities, so we're not judging, and then as we meet other packages, just to focus on what's really wonderful in them, on what's inspiring, on what's good. 
And what amazes me is that even with people that we think are really difficult, it's not so hard to find those qualities which we can honor, which we can appreciate. What we find in practice from doing this, not, not as a kind of theoretical understanding, but very pragmatically, when we just direct our minds towards appreciating the good qualities in people, we find that the feeling of metta begins to come quite naturally. We don't have to force it and we don't have to kind of drag it up from the depths. It's a function of seeing the good qualities. I had a striking example of this. <clears throat> I was with somebody who was extremely negative and resentful and angry. And all of those, all of those personality traits that are the most difficult to be with and quite abrasive. And I saw myself kind of closing down and retreating in the face of the strength of those qualities in this person. And one day it turned out that this person came in and was showing uh, some of the paintings that they had done. And I didn't even know that they were an artist. And it, was, it was just like this hidden realm, hidden domain. The paintings were so beautiful. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't kind of make that switch in my mind from how I had perceived this person to what I was seeing uh, of her work. And what was so beautiful for me was to see that through her painting, my heart opened up to the quality of being in this person that must have created those paintings. And from all that resistance and pushing away and not liking, just in the moment and quite spontaneously, without thinking about it, there was this deep feeling of appreciation and respect and loving-kindness. And it's so beautiful to see the shift just from seeing what was good. We can do that. We can really make this a practice for ourselves as a way of strengthening and cultivating this feeling of love. The thing is, we have to do it. You know, we really have to be willing and conscious enough and agreeable to making the effort. You know, often with these Dharma talks, and also both in, in speaking and in listening to them, there's often the sense that one can get of kind of mental nods. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you know? But there's a big difference between kind of the mental nod of agreement and the actual decision, really. This deep, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make the effort to do it. 
it's from the latter that the transformation of our own minds and hearts happens. So seeing the good aspects of people, consciously making that effort, see what result, see what comes from that. Another way to generate or nurture the feeling of love, feeling of metta, is to also try to see things from other perspectives. We so often get caught in our own viewpoint about things. And so when somebody does something that's coming from a very different place, and even something that we think may be harmful or destructive, before the immediate reaction of closing off or judgment or pushing away, can we just stop and see if we can imagine what it's like from that person's point of view. One of the great realizations of spiritual practice is that we really don't know everything. And it's kind of nice to let go of thinking we do and just to say, oh yeah, maybe there's another perspective on this, another viewpoint, even if it's quite opposite to our own. It makes possible the feeling of metta. It makes possible the feeling of loving regard. Love also comes from feelings of gratitude. Gratitude is a wonderful state of being. It's a wonderful quality to bring forth. So often people do things for us, have been benefactors to us in so many ways, whether it's our family or friends or, or other people. And there's something very heartful about allowing the feeling of gratitude to be there. From that gratitude can come a tremendous amount of love. Again, it's not the love of wanting anything. It's the love of simply wishing, may you be happy. Be happy. That can be a very heartfelt wish. There's also the specific meditation practices which we do. And it's what this retreat is about, really. Developing the specific practices in meditation to generate the quality of loving feeling. It can be done in a variety of ways. It can be done in a very general way, where we just send out loving thought to anybody, to everybody, <clears throat> uh, either specifically or in groups. There's also a very specific way of developing this quality of love, <clears throat> and it's what we're doing on the retreat. It's in the direction of developing deep state of concentration. It's called jhana or absorption. What we're doing 
are the preliminary techniques for developing this feeling of metta so strongly that the mind becomes absorbed in it. And it's possible for us to actually work in this direction through the practice that we're doing. Metta is this generosity of the heart. It's a gift of the heart. May you be happy. I'd like to read a poem <coughs> by Galway Cannell, <coughs> who is a New England poet. And for me, this poem just captures the beauty and the power of metta, of love. The name of it is Saint Francis and the Sow. <clears throat> the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. <clears throat> for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, Blessings of earth on the sow. The sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. This is metta. This is the quality of heart that we can cultivate, that we can generate. Reteaching to everyone their loveliness so that we all flower from within. This was the great blessing of Deepama. And it's the great blessing of anyone who has brought to some perfection this quality of a loving heart. Let's sit for a few minutes.
use the phrases of loving-kindness in the simplest and most gentle way. Simple wish for someone to be happy. Be free of pain. Be free of suffering. Be happy. Stay with the feeling before the words. The simplicity of the feeling. (coughs) A simple wishing well. Let the words come very gently out of that feeling. Without efforting. Metta is reteaching to all beings their loveliness. If you can carry this lightly and steadily,
Thank you.